I will be uh, preaching in English. <laughs> it's a delight to be uh, with you guys. I think maybe the last time I was here was 2017 or something like that. Uh, during this same period of time, around uh, Reformation Day. And so I, uh, I get the, this, this was a topic that was assigned to me, and I'm supposed to talk about why don't we baptize babies, and it's a question mark, and so I'm going to be a little rebellious and change the title and just say why we don't baptize babies, all right? <laughs> Instead of a question, we're going to make an assertion, all right? So if you take your Bibles and turn to the most famous text on baptism in the Bible, Genesis chapter 17. <laughs> Genesis chapter 17, starting at verse 6, this is, this is God's holy word. God has appeared to Abram and he changes his name, and in verse 6, he says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your seed, your descendants after you, throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your seed or descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your seed after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your seed after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not your seed, a servant who is born in your house and, or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people, for he has broken my covenant. Well, let's pray. Father, we do come to you tonight. We pray that you would give us a little extra energy and uh, some um, open hearts, open minds. Help us to concentrate. Father, many... Uh, have worked all day and here we are late into the night and we pray for your help and we pray most of all that you would by your spirit uh, open up the truth of scripture to us and father as we heard in the previous hour one of our primary distinctives is that it is the Bible and the Bible alone that is our authority for faith and practice and so, Father, we pray that you would help us now, help us to be charitable towards those who disagree, 
Help us to be grateful for the contributions that they've made. And we pray that you would give us clarity and conviction in Jesus' name. Amen. So many people think that a Baptist cannot be Reformed. If you've been a Reformed Baptist for any amount of time, you will find people that will flat flat out say that if you are a Baptist, you cannot be Reformed because being Reformed means holding to covenant theology and covenant theology in turn demands covenantally baptizing your children. And so since we don't baptize our babies, we obviously are not reformed from that perspective. And so one of the things that's happened in terms of um, trying to carry on this debate as to who are the proper subjects of baptism primarily, secondarily, what is the proper mode, oftentimes Baptists have argued against infant baptism simply by saying something like this. There's not a single example in the New Testament of a baby being baptized. And the Pado-Baptist, or the Presbyterian, if you will, is completely unfazed, unmoved, concluding that Baptists really are theologically naive and even probably marginally biblically illiterate. How many have ever saw the movie A River Runs Through It? It's classic, right? Brad Pitt, Tom Skerritt. Tom Skerritt's the Presbyterian father. You guys remember this? He's got two sons. The narrator is Robert Redford for one of the sons throughout the whole movie. And there's a scene where Robert Redford is narrating, and he says, the Burns family run a general store in a one-store town and still managed to do it badly. They were Methodists. A a denomination my father often referred to as Baptists who could read. (laughs) So when we come to this issue of claiming to be reformed and then yet refusing to baptize our babies, we actually have to understand what is at stake when we answer this question. And what I want to say right from, the, right from the start tonight is that when we ask this question, why don't we baptize babies, we're actually asking a bigger question. And that is, who belongs in the church? Okay? That's the question that we're really asking. Our brother said in the previous hour that basically being a Baptist uh, is often reduced to believer's baptism in a form of church government. And I want to say that our Baptist forefathers actually had a far more robust perspective on the nature of the church. And it was their view of the nature of the church that made them wrestle with that very question. All right. And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to look at the covenantal basis basis for baptizing babies or if you will children of believers and then we're going to look at the covenantal basis 
for refusing to baptize our babies, all right? So this is going to be like drinking from a fire hose, and um, Pastor Ed actually gave this assignment to me, so if you feel waterboarded after this, it's Ed's fault, all right? Um, I'm just doing what I've been told, all right? So what we're going to do tomorrow morning is we're going to look at the biblical texts that are used to support infant baptism, and then I'm going to show you from those very texts why they not only don't support infant baptism, but I would argue end up supporting what we would call credo or believer's baptism, all right? So as we, as we talk about Reformed theology, of course, we're at the time of the year where we celebrate the Protestant Reformation and uh, Luther nails the 95 Theses to the church door at Wittenberg, October 31st, 1517, and then starts the Protestant Reformation, and, uh, and then everything was great after that, right? Well, no, not exactly. Okay. One of the things that starts to happen is the development of Reformed theology, not just, not just Protestant theology, but Reformed theology. And it's during this period that you have uh, Ulrich Zwingli, um, John Calvin, Heinrich Bollinger, and the, the, those early Reformed, that early Reformed generation. And then you have post-Reformation theology. And what this really represents is, in a sense, a development of what we would call covenant theology. Now, here's the interesting thing. Probably 99% of Baptists today are typically dispensational and don't even know anything about covenant theology. Our Baptist forefathers were committed to covenant theology. And so when we talk about covenant theology, let me just give you a very, very, very brief overview. Uh, This is not an exposition or a defense. It is just a brief explanation And you'll see the importance of it as we go on. So in covenant theology, there is basically three covenants. Now, we we can talk in the Q&A about some variations on that. But those three covenants would be, first of all, the covenant of works. And the covenant of works is the name that's often given to to the covenantal arrangement between God and Adam in the garden. And although it is true that in Genesis 1 and 2 you do not see the word covenant, Um, applied in this way. You also don't see the word covenant or or even the word marriage, and yet you have the covenant of marriage in Genesis chapter 2. And so the elements of of a covenant, which we don't have time to go through right now, are all present in Genesis 1 and 2, and the covenant of works is an important foundational covenant. And so I would define that covenant like this. The covenant of works was a gracious arrangement, and by gracious, I don't mean that it, was, that it was grace like the gospel, but it was gracious in the sense that God condescends, this is the language of our confession actually, God condescends to graciously enter into a relationship with Adam by way of covenant. And so it's a gracious arrangement between God and Adam. Adam stood in this arrangement as the federal or the covenant head or representative of all of the human race. And so Adam, who was created in innocence, was in a probationary period. He was in a probationary period where where his obedience was going to be tested. 
And the covenant of works basically went like this, that if, you, if, if Adam obeyed, he would have won life for himself and for his posterity, but if he failed, he would bring death to himself and to his posterity. And so the idea is, is that Adam is the federal or covenantal head of his people and his obedience or his disobedience is going to either impact us negatively or positively. Of course, Adam falls and plunges himself and all of his posterity into a state of sin and misery. The second covenant is the covenant of redemption. Now, chronologically, the covenant of redemption comes before the covenant of works, but the covenant of redemption, sometimes called the Pactum Salutis, is an intra-Trinitarian covenant that is pretemporal. That is, it was made in eternity past between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ is appointed as the federal head of his people. You actually see this great parallel between Adam and Christ as the covenant heads of their people in Romans 5, 12 to 21. The Father then gives the elect to the Son And this is language that you have in the Gospel of John repeatedly. Those whom the Father has given to me will come to me. And so the Son then comes and and enters into this world in the incarnation and by his active and his passive obedience secures the salvation of the elect. When we say the active obedience, we're talking about uh, our Lord Jesus obeying the requirements of the law. So in a real sense, fulfilling every requirement of the law. We just sang it, by the way, in Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery. And then the passive obedience is Christ bearing the curse of a broken law by becoming a curse for us. And so, one of the things, one of the beautiful things about covenant theology is that it holds forth a perspective of justification that is based on not only Christ's death for us, but also Christ's life for us. Not only Christ's substitutionary atonement for us, but Christ's obedience for us. And so this message is not about justification, but let me just remind you that you could have all of your sins forgiven right now on the spot, and you would still not go to heaven. Because to enter into God's presence, you don't just need to be forgiven, you need to be perfectly righteous. And perfect righteousness is imputed to us, not because of our own works, but because of Jesus Christ's work. And so then in that, in that covenant of redemption, the Father and the Son send the Spirit, who then apply, as it were, the redemptive benefits of the last Adam to the elect. And then that brings us to the third covenant of covenant theology, and this is where it starts to get a little tricky for us. This third covenant is called the covenant of grace. Now, this is where you got to like, like slap yourself or splash water on your face because this is where you got to pay 
close attention, or as my sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Sullivan, used to say in her New Hampshire accent, it's time to put on your thinking caps, children. Covenant of Grace, from, from this, what we're going to call the classic covenant theology perspective, the covenant of grace is first given, given in Genesis 3.15 with the first gospel promise. And so then the covenant of grace is seen as, and this is the language and it's important, one covenant in substance with different administrations. All right? By the way, this is, this is going to be this is going to be the crucial point that we're going to focus on. So the covenant of grace is given all the way back in the garden after the fall, and it is that covenant of grace that is one in substance throughout all of redemptive history. It is just administered differently under different covenants. All right? And so you got to keep that one covenant, different administrations. And so... The substance of the covenant would refer to the internal reality of it. The administration of the covenant would refer to the, as it were, the external administration of it. The substance would refer to the spiritual realities of that covenant. The administration would refer to both the national and physical administrations of it. So, here's, here's what, we, here's what the, the, the position says. The external administration of the covenant of grace is visible. It is given to the physical seed the, the physical administration of the covenant of grace in the Old Testament was administered through circumcision. All right, you, you tracking with me? We good? Yes? All right, I got one thumbs up. Okay? All right, I'm going to preach to you, brother. Keep your thumb up. <laughs> So you've got this, so, so, so remember, one substance, many administrations, the administration is an external administration to a visible people, okay, believers and their seed, and that, that external administration comes through circumcision. Now the internal administration is spiritual, it only applies to the elect or to true believers, but here's Here's the point. The result is that from this perspective, you have both believers and unbelievers who are in or under the covenant of grace. Okay? You, you, you see where we're going with this? So Ryan McGraw, in a, in a brand new little book, and I love, I love Reformation heritage books, um, but this is a little book on, on why infant baptism matters. And Ryan McGraw says, there is a difference between being in the covenant and being of the covenant. 
The covenant has an external administration and an internal essence. Its administration describes the visible group of people to whom God speaks in word and signs. The internal essence refers to those who lay hold of Christ through faith. So, Pado-Baptist, and Pado's just come from the Greek word for child, so Pado-Baptists justify baptizing their children because the covenant of grace, as they understand it, going back to Genesis 17, includes both physical and spiritual seed. Okay? In other words... Abraham is a recipient of the covenant of grace and the promise of that covenant is to him and to his seed and the sign that they're a partaker of that covenant is circumcision. What happens is they take that view and then bring it into the New Testament and say that believers are under the covenant of grace and therefore as they have children, their own physical posterity, those children are brought into that covenant but not by circumcision but by baptism. Now the result of that is that you have a mixed, by the way, by definition, by, by necessity, you have a mixed church. You have believers and you have unbelievers. You, you see? And so what is happening is that you end up having a mixed church based on this, this idea of the physical administration of the covenant. And so, Ryan McGraw again, he says, the blessings of Abraham has come to us and our children with greater power and hope than ever before. Now then listen to this. We baptize children in the new covenant church because they continue to be heirs of the promises of the covenant of grace but with greater advantages than ever before, all right? Now, we don't have time to go into this, but you have to understand this is, this is very different than Roman Catholic infant baptism, okay? And this is very different than Lutheran infant baptism. This is a very distinct covenantal model, but it is a model that fit hand-in-glove for the magisterial reformers at the time of the Reformation. That is those who actually saw a relationship between the state and the church. Do you know that at the time of the Reformation, now we're, we're, not, we're not in a sense, we're not the descendants of the so-called Anabaptists, all right? But you have to understand at the time of the Reformation, you had people that, that believed that Baptism should be reserved for those who make a, 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 a credible profession of faith. You have to understand that this wasn't just a theological issue at the time of the Reformation. It was a profound social issue. Okay? Because if you were born, let's say you were born in, um, in Germany, and you are a German citizen, 
by virtue of being a German citizen born, let's say you're born into a Lutheran area, and then you are baptized as a Lutheran, okay? You are a Lutheran by virtue of what? Your ethnicity, your nationality. Baptism records, infant baptism records, were the basis of, of taxation, keeping track of citizenship, and military conscription. And so if you have a group of people saying, we don't think we should baptize our infants, basically they're treasonists, okay? So, so the, the issue was bigger than just theological, but the issue of covenantal baptism and believers and their children fit very well into um, what you could call a sacral system where you have a state church, all right? Now, I'm not making any of this up. Heidelberg Catechism, question 74. Should infants also be baptized? Answer, yes. Infants as well as adults are included in God's covenant and people, and they, no less than adults, are promised deliverance from sin through Christ's blood and the Holy Spirit who produces faith. Therefore, by baptism, the sign of the covenant they too should be incorporated into the Christian church and distinguished from the children of unbelievers. This was done in the Old Testament by circumcision, which was replaced in the New Testament by baptism. Okay. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 28, paragraph 4. Not only those that do actually profess faith and obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. One of my favorite theologians, by the way, most of my favorite theologians are dead Presbyterians. All right? The, the, the contribution they've made to the church is, is immense. John Murray, one of my favorite 20th century theologians, baptism is the circumcision of the New Testament. Charles Hodge, famous Princeton theologian, when a man becomes a Christian, his children are to be regarded as doing the same. Okay. So what we see is that the Paedo-Baptist position rests squarely on a very, uh, on a very strict covenantal continuity between Old and New Testaments, right? So, so in other words, the Paedo-Baptist position looks at the Old Covenant, um, looks at the covenant of grace differently administered, and then, in a sense, flatlines that covenant by bringing that genealogical principle of believer in their seed right into the New Testament. So there's a sense in which it's just flatline. There's... <laughs> I don't know about you, we'll see this Sunday morning, but when I see the word new, I kind of think that it means like new. But anyway, that's just me. So old and new are flatlined, and so then we can also see the second thing is that the position of infant baptism relies heavily on the Abrahamic covenant and the institution of circumcision as the covenant sign, and then third, with this covenantal continuity, the flat line between old and new, baptism replaces circumcision, and so just as the children of Israel were circumcised under the old, and their children as well, at least their boys, believers are baptized under the new. So, 
one of the crucial aspects in dealing with the Pado-Baptist position is understanding the Abrahamic covenant and its relationship to the covenant of grace, right? So, in other words, this is why a lot of times Pado-Baptists look at, at, at Baptists as if they're just functionally illiterate is because we very simplistically say, well, we don't have any examples in the New Testament, and so that settles it. And, and what they want to say is, look, there is, there is a bigger theological structure that we're dealing with here. And so if you're not going to deal with the covenantal argument, if you're not going to deal with the Abrahamic covenant, if you're not going to deal with the administration of the covenant of grace under the old and the new covenants, then, then, then we don't even have anything to talk about. Now, I, I want to say that there's a level of justification that they have in feeling that way. If, if you walk into, uh, you know, Chick-fil-A, and there's, um, there's a Jehovah's Witness standing out front, and they want to start arguing with you about the Trinity, and they turn around and say, well, the word Trinity is not in the Bible, right? Right? And there's no text that says, you shall believe in the Trinity, right? We don't go, oh my goodness, you're right. <laughs> we say that the argument for the Trinity is far, is far more sophisticated than just simply not having a verse, right? The Pado-Baptist does the same thing with the issue of baptism, Okay, so he says, look, there, there's a theological construction to this that somehow you are missing. And so what I want to say is that, is that, first of all, Baptist covenant theology first denies the idea of one covenant and just different administrations. Okay. Now, th this, is, this is just for those of you who love history and um, love what our brother said in the, first, in the first hour. So the particular Baptists of the 17th century did not see the unfolding of biblical revelation or redemptive history in the, in, in the terms of one covenant, different administrations. By the way, neither did the prince of the Puritans, John Owen. Okay. So the covenant theology that's actually presented for us in the Second London Baptist Confession is a covenant theology which, in my estimation, shows a much greater sensitivity to the, to the issues of not only continuity between the old and the new, but also the discontinuities between the old and the new. You could argue that the covenant theology of the Second London Baptist Confession was in a sense more in tune with biblical theology and the idea of the progress of revelation, or if you want to put it in fancier terms, the federal theology of the 1689 offers us a distinct history of salvation. So there is, back to this, 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 
covenant of grace. So do we actually believe in the covenant of grace? And the answer is absolutely we believe in the covenant of grace. But the covenant of grace is the gospel. The covenant of grace is, in a sense, the new covenant. So the covenant of grace, or the gospel, is actually promised, not given. You remember we, went, we said covenant theology? The covenant of grace is given in Genesis 3. I, we would say it was promised. And then as it was promised, it was progressively revealed through the covenants, plural, of promise. Okay? So in other words, the one substance, multiple administrations, just doesn't cut it. To say that, to say that in, at least in some ways, the Mosaic covenant is a covenant of grace, but just in a different way than the Abrahamic covenant was a covenant of grace, which is just different than the way that the new covenant is a covenant of grace, actually falls apart. And if you don't believe me, come back Sunday morning. So how do we defend this? All right. And so this is this is where this is where you got to like buckle up, put a helmet on. We're going to go really really fast. The reason we don't baptize babies, okay, there's more reasons than what I'm going to give you right now, but let me just say, one of the major reasons we don't baptize babies is because we have a distinctly different view of the Abrahamic covenant. Okay? Now, there's going to be three things that are promised repeatedly in the covenant with Abraham. By the way, the covenant with Abraham is progressively revealed, is it not? You have the initial revelation of it in chapter 12. You have, in a sense, the ratification of it in chapter 15. You have the sign of the covenant being given in chapter 17. Uh, And and so you have this, this progressive revelation of it. But when you boil down the covenant made with Abraham, it comes down to three things. It's easy. Seed, circumcision, and land. All right? Seed, circumcision, and land. Now, I'm going to argue that we should understand each one of those from two different aspects. The problem with one covenant, different administrations, is it takes the whole package and does not make distinctions. Okay? So think about seed. Okay? So the promised seed, of course, ends up being at least initially Isaac. Right? Okay? But you know, reading the narrative, that that seed is going to be just more than Isaac. It's going to be actually the descendants of Jacob that end up constituting the nation of Israel. So the seed of Abraham is Isaac, but the seed of Abraham also then becomes the nation Israel, which we're going to hear about in the morning, right, Pastor Corey? Set us all straight on it, okay? But then there's something else about the seed of Abraham. It's not just the physical descendants of Abraham, right? You also have... The seed, Galatians 3.16, which is, which is Jesus Christ, right? 
Uh, th- that's the way the whole New Testament opens up. The book of the beginnings of Jesus Christ. Son of Abraham. Son of David. And so then, then you have not only Isaac, not only then the nation, but preeminently Jesus Christ, so that by the time you get to Romans 4 and Galatians 3, the children of Abraham are those who are in union with the seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ. So Abraham is the father of those who have faith in Jesus, both Jew and Gentile, both circumcised and uncircumcised. So some of you probably grew up singing this uh, song. Father Abraham has many sons, many sons has Father Abraham. We had a guy in our church, Don Strachan, Megan knows him. And uh, we had to stop singing that song because he'd get so carried away and he'd go right foot and the chair go flying and left foot, chair go flying. He was so enthused about being a son of Abraham. But it's, in a sense, you understand that, that we're not adding to what the Scripture says when we understand the seed of Abraham that way because going all the way back to the first promise made to Abraham, it is in you and in your seed, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Right? And so there may be a, a, a handful of, of ethnic Jewish people here who believe in Jesus, but the predominant majority of us are Gentiles, and the fact that we're here worshiping Jesus Christ is actually a sign that God has kept His promise that He made to Abraham. All right? And so it's absolutely fantastic. So the ultimate, ultimate fulfillment of the promise to Abraham is not just that Israel would be blessed, but that all the families of the earth would be blessed. Now, here's, here's, here's what we're saying is when you look at the idea of the seed, the, the seed promise is far bigger than pure physical national fulfillment. There is a spiritual dimension to the seed. By the way, do you know that Messiah has seed? Isaiah 53, there, there, there are prophecies. Children of Messiah. Who are the children of Messiah? Not the physical posterity of Messiah, but those who are actually spiritually born and belong to Zion just as much as any physical descendant of Abraham. And so the, what we could say is this, the strict genealogical principle, okay, Abrahamic covenant, you and your seed, right? Strict genealogical principle, I would argue, is now abrogated under the new covenant. And we'll look at that tomorrow in detail, all right? So dual nature, physical, national, but then also Christological and spiritual, Make sense? Yeah? Next, everybody's favorite subject, circumcision. I preached through Genesis, did like four sermons on circumcision, and I was thinking, this poor visitors. <laughs> it's like, what kind of church is this? They were very sharp and cutting sermons, though. 
All right, circumcision, sorry. <laughs> so, circumcision is administered to the physical seed of Abraham, marking them out nationally, giving them the right to the land. Okay. Circumcision, therefore, is the physical sign of the covenant. In fact, we even read it in Genesis 17. If you're uncircumcised, you're cut off. But by the way, it's a play on words. Okay? You're, you're cast off, you're cut off if you're not circumcised. Because if you're not circumcised, you're not in the covenant. Okay? So circumcision would mark those who belong to the covenant physically and nationally. But do you understand that even in the Old Testament, circumcision did more than that? Even in the Old Testament, circumcision was a picture of a believing heart which knew God. So in the Old Testament, circumcision was not merely a mark in the flesh. Yes, it was a physical sign administered to the children and by also even foreign servants, right? Administered to the children of the flesh to mark out their physical and national identity, which included their inheritance of the land. How, how does David, what, what, what bad name does David call Goliath? Uncircumcised Philistine, right? You had the circumcised, the clean, who belonged to the covenant, uncircumcised, the unclean who are outside of the covenant. Now, it certainly does that physical national identity, but the sign itself also had spiritual significance. But, but here's the thing, the spiritual significance of circumcision was rarely experienced by the children of the flesh under the old covenant. Okay, so um, we'll see this tomorrow. So the spiritual reality was frequently missing in Israel. And so the, the, the picture of, the circum, of circumcision is, is in a sense a spiritual sign of regeneration. Why? Because you have a whole host of passages that talk about you have to circumcise your heart. You have to stop being stiff-necked, circumcise your heart, so that what? So that you may know me. Okay. So, so do you see what we, when we say the dual nature of the Abrahamic covenant, what we're saying is physical and national, but then also spiritual. Now, understand this, this is not just some sort of New Testament addendum that brings this, this is the understanding in the Old Testament itself. Okay? So, to bring together seed and circumcision, Christ's spiritual seed have received true circumcision of the heart through the Holy Spirit. Okay? Romans 2 25 to 29. Who's a true Jew? True Jew is not just one who's external, who's circumcised in the flesh. A true Jew is actually one who has been circumcised of heart by the Spirit. Okay? Paul could say this. I mean, you, you, you want to do an interesting study. Do, do a study on the way New, the New Testament deals with circumcision. 
Paul says, beware of the dogs. <laughs> you know, the problem with, with preaching is that you have your mind just so full of going all different directions and you go, do you mind if we're here until midnight? <laughs> yeah. So, from a Jewish perspective, who were the dogs? Gentiles. Paul says, beware of the dogs. He's talking about the Jewish false teachers. Beware of the dogs. So there's a reversal there. You see it. Then he says, beware of the false circumcision. Ooh. Now, false circumcision is a euphemism in English Bible. Because New American Standard gets a little closer. Beware of the mutilation. Okay? Right? So, we won't go into the, into the logistics of this, but you get the idea. All right? You get the idea. We are the true circumcision, Paul says, who worship Jesus Christ in the Spirit of our God. Right? So, you have the true circumcision, which is a spiritual circumcision, which is exactly why circumcision in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, is absolutely abrogated. It's not abrogated or done away with because it's replaced by baptism. Rather, it's done away with because what it foreshadowed has become a reality and the national identity marker is now irrelevant since the Mosaic Covenant's no longer in effect. Does that make sense? So, circumcision under the New Covenant is, you ready? Meaningless. Okay. How do you know? Well, you have a few statements by Paul that goes like this. Circumcision and uncircumcision mean nothing. But what matters is keeping the commandments of God. 1 Corinthians 7.19 Or, how about Galatians 6, circumcision and uncircumcision don't mean anything. What matters is the new creation. New creation, that's the work of the Spirit. Okay? And so, the, uh, the perspective of the New Testament is that circumcision, physical circumcision, is abrogated now, not because it's replaced by baptism, but because it is fulfilled by the work of the Spirit in the New Covenant. Okay? So, those who are in Christ Jesus are the seed of Abraham. Okay? They have become the children of Abraham and have received circumcision of the heart that is the new birth by the Spirit. Now, if, if you just take that, and, and, and by the way, we're, we're not saying anything in terms of um, 
a, a future for ethnic Israel at this point, all right? What we're saying is new covenant fulfillment has in a sense done away with the physical and the national aspects of the old covenant, particularly the Abrahamic covenant, and the spiritual dimensions have been fulfilled in Jesus Christ by his spirit. If you, if you keep that perspective in mind and then go to Romans 4, all of a sudden Paul's argument starts to make sense. What's the significance of Abraham being justified before he was circumcised? Is that not part of Paul's argument in Romans 4? What's the significance of that? So that Abraham would be the father of both the uncircumcised and the circumcised. In, in other words, the circumcision is, not the, is no longer the defining identity marker anymore. Then you get to Galatians 3, and Galatians 3 absolutely blows the whole thing out of the water. Those who have the faith of Abraham, these are the children of Abraham. And so that, that, that Christological center, Jesus Christ is the seed of Abraham. If I'm in union with him, then I've been circumcised of heart. And then you go, well, what about the land? Now, here's, here's something that just, you know, just between us that I find absolutely humorous. Pedo-Baptists will insist on the physical aspects of the covenant being brought over into the new covenant because it's one substance, different administrations, and yet they'll turn around and spiritualize the land promise. I think that's funny. Right? Because if they were consistent, then they would be more like dispensationalists who would say that the, the land, the, land the, the perimeters given promised to Abraham. But here's, here's the thing. It's, this, it's, it's the same principle, dual nature. Okay? There was, in fact, a promised land. Now, we could talk about this for a long time. How much of that promised land did Abraham ever even inherit? Okay. Oh, a little bit more than a foot. Okay. Sarah's burial plot. That's all he owned. By the way, you understand that that's a theological statement. Okay. He died, Hebrews 11, without receiving what was promised. There was never a time where Abraham actually could say, this actually, here's, here's the deed, I've got the real estate. I own a little piece of land where my wife is buried. But there's a reason. And Hebrews 11 tells us the reason. If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would have been looking just for the land, they could have returned. But they were looking for a city whose builder and maker is God. 
And so when Paul says in Romans chapter 4, Abraham is heir, he doesn't say of the land. He says of the world. God supra-fulfills the promise. In a new heavens and a new earth, which is way bigger than that little plot of ground where they're shedding blood right now. And so Abraham's inheritance and the inheritance of Abraham's seed is actually a new heavens and a new earth. Right? In other words, the promised land was typological. Canaan was typological of a better promise. And so... Let me, just, let me just kind of wrap it up like this. So I've got three grandsons. Okay. And I'll show you pictures right after service. We'll have a little invitation and you can come up and look at my pictures. <laughs> my, my grandsons are awesome. And my oldest grandson is named Calvin Owen. Now, you know that you raised your kid right when they named their kid Galvin Owen. I said to her, sweetie, she was pregnant again. I said, you think we could, like, get some Baptist names in there now? And then she went with Sean and Elliot. So, anyway, <laughs> so Calvin and I have a, have a sweet, special relationship, all right? And so, imagine... I'm driving down 395. I've got Calvin in the car with me. And we drive past the Gardnerville Fairgrounds. You know what the Gardnerville Fairgrounds look like? It's just dirt. Okay? It is unimpressive. It's dusty. It's... And so imagine I've got Calvin with me and we're driving down and, and they're setting up for the carnival, right? The merry-go-round, the Ferris wheel, the nasty hot dogs, the cotton candy and all of that and then the smells, right? Can you kind of, right? And Calvin says, Papa, can we please go to the carnival? And I say, yes. And he says, do you promise? And I say, yes. And so every time we drive by, especially at night when it's all lit up, he says, Papa, remember your promise. And I say, I remember. And then one day I pick him up and I say, get in the car. I'm, gonna I'm going to fulfill my promise. And we get in the car and we start driving. And we drive right past the Gardnerville Fairgrounds. And he says, Papa, hold on a second. The, the carnival's back there. The fairground's back there. And I say to him, Calvin, just be patient. Just be patient. And the farther we drive, we get down to Bishop. And he's like, Papa, it's 180 miles back that way. What are you thinking? I say, just be patient. And so then we pull in to Anaheim. And I say, close your eyes. And then we pull right up into the Disneyland parking lot, the magic kingdom. I say, open your eyes. 
Disneyland. But you promised the Gardnerville Fairgrounds. <laughs> He's not going to say that. He's not going to say that, right? He's going to go, Disneyland, this is way better. So have I kept my word to him by doing better than what I promised? And the answer is yes. And so as God promises that little piece of land to Abraham and his descendants, there is a sense in which it, it is going to be fulfilled in a way that is so much better than any of us could ever imagine. And so as we consider this, this, this idea of why don't we baptize our babies, I would say it's all about Disneyland. <laughs> <laughs> this idea of one covenant of grace, different administrations, emphasizes far too much the continuity and it requires the physical and national components of the Abrahamic covenant to still be enforced. And the New Testament says that that's not true. And so the New Testament abrogates those aspects of the physical seed, physical circumcision. And what I want to say is that what it does, and we see this most beautifully in the New Testament, or the New Covenant, is it focuses us on the reality that in this New Covenant that we're a part of, it's not a mixed covenant. How do I know that? Because Jeremiah says, and they'll all know me, from the greatest to the least. Right? So this covenant is better. And so our Pado Baptist friends go, how can it be better? You're leaving your kids out. Oh, we'll talk about that tomorrow. Okay? The realities of it are better better. Everybody in the new covenant who's truly in the new covenant is born of the spirit, heart of stone taken away, heart of flesh, renewed spirit, spirit indwells them and God writes his law on our hearts. He circumcises our hearts and we know him. This is why we don't actually don't baptize our babies because we're not going to give the sign of the covenant to those who have not expressed faith with, with which brings them into that covenant. <laughs> right. It's all about who belongs in the church. You got kids? You got grandkids? Are they privileged? Yes, they are. Okay. By the way, it's a false argument to say you either say your kids are are either really believers by virtue of your, your faith or they're just unbelievers like the world. That's not true. There's a different position. Your children are wonderfully privileged to grow up in a Christian home and to be under the sound of the gospel and to be in a Bible teaching church and to have Sunday school teachers who love them and tell them about the Lord Jesus. Okay? 
They're not little, they're not little pagans. Okay? But they are, also aren't born Christians. And so, that's the first reason why we don't baptize our babies. Come tomorrow, we'll give you eight more. All right? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the wonderful grace of the Lord Jesus. Lord, he's our treasure, he's our prize. And we thank you that in him all of your promises are yes and amen. Receive our praise in Jesus' name. Amen.